I'm Marshall Bolin, and I'm here with Steve Douglas. And we're a couple of friends who might have some different opinions, but we like each other anyway. And we want the world to be a better place filled with better communication and better collaboration and collaborative paths forward between people who might disagree. How are you yeah. doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Marshall. It's good to be with you today. And uh, uh, I've been excited to continue our collaboration and conversations. Um, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward also to our topic today. So um, what do you got? You had, yeah, you had brought up um, talking about uh, fear um, and uh, um, how we process through fear. And uh, so I was thinking that today it would be really good to kind of talk about just the climate that we've seen um, in the United States uh, in the last oh, month or so and um, kind of how we can collaborate and get past um, fear when we're communicating with people yeah. who don't think the way we do. Certainly. Yeah. What, what kind of fear have you observed in the last while? Well, quite a bit. Um, I've found in conversations both with my uh, conservative friends and my um, more progressive friends that both have talked about the fear that they have. Um, so when it came to the riots uh, that happened at the Capitol building um, this last month, people are afraid on both sides, whether they were for that or against it. Um, I think a lot of that happened because of fear yeah. and the results, you know, the, what's coming out of it is largely fed by fear. Yeah. Um, I think in a previous episode, you and I talked a little bit about that and touched on it, um, that, uh, you mentioned that, uh, um, in your message to conservatives that you're more powerful than you think you are. And that can be intimidating to people. And so I think there's fear on both sides of what might happen in our country and um, where people are heading. And so, yeah. I don't know, I just wanted to process through that with you today yeah. and uh, think about um, some, some ways that we could overcome fear when we're in conversation. And maybe that's something that we can model today. Um, right on. I, I, I think that probably on both sides, uh, e each side is thinking that the other side has intentions that the other side wouldn't, th they don't think is their intentions. That, that's not what they're trying to do. Mm. And so uh, when, I, when I think about what scared me about the storming of the Capitol, what I was afraid of is uh, I was afraid that uh, Trump was willing to be a dictator and that the people who were storming the Capitol were in favor of him being a dictator for this country and going against some of the system and process that uh, we've decided is uh, the way that we run the country. I was afraid of Trump saying one thing and actually intending another thing, which is something that I've observed. I mean, I can say in somewhat of an objective sense, I, I think it would be easy for pretty much, you know, for a large amount of things that Trump has said, if, if we did an online search, we could find him saying something that is kind of the opposite of that. Hmm. That's what I've observed anyway. So I just thought, wow, here is a guy who has this power and uh, he is uh, contesting the election results in the name of, um, of freedom and the constitution and uh, individual rights. And I don't, uh, it's, I don't believe that that's what he intends. Uh, I, I'm not sure what he intends, but I, I, I'm just not trustworthy that uh, that's where he's coming from. So, so those are my fears that there, there was a large group of people who were uh, willing to do what Trump intended and that Trump was willing to go against the, the rules that we all 
more or less agree to our, our rules of how we run the country. Not that many of us had a say in how we drafted the rules, but that's another topic. Yeah. Well, those are some really good points. Um, yeah. You know, gut reaction, when, when I hear you say you're afraid of some of those things, you know, it would be to kind of dismiss some of those things. Like, oh, of course he didn't mean that. And yet, I think I was kind of, if, if I'm honest, I was kind of afraid of similar things toward the end there. Um, he didn't come out and condemn things that ought to have been condemned. He didn't immediately tell people to disperse and, and make a big announcement. It almost felt as if he was waiting to see what the results of that would be. That just alarmed me. And he just did some things that, you know, at the end there that I just really left me with a lot of pause. And I think made me feel a little the same way of, could he actually go that route? And, and before that moment, I never would have thought that. I would have thought those fears were totally unfounded. And so I, I think I can say, I get what you mean uh, with that. And... Um, there were some things that, that happened there that, that also made me afraid. And yet, uh, you know, I think on the other side, the reasons why it happened, I think conservatives, and I, I, I'm not sure that I can speak for all conservatives everywhere, right? But um, I think many conservatives, and especially religious conservatives or, or you know, Christian conservatives, um, felt that a lot of what we valued was eroded during uh, President Obama's uh, administration. We saw some things that, that many people would celebrate, but we didn't think that was healthy or good for the direction of our, our country. Um, we saw him doing a lot of things by executive order that should mm. have been through the process of um, Congress. Yeah. And to be honest, I felt that he did a lot to whip up anger and, and, and frustration between people of different ethnicities. And, and I think we could have a deeper conversation about that things hadn't changed enough. And so the things that he was pointing out uh, were valid things to point out. But on the other side of it, the way that they were pointed out and um, and yet not really dealt with, I think is what led to riots and things we saw in Minneapolis and, and elsewhere. I, th I think there's a, a correlation and a building that, that began. Do you have a specific example of something he said or did? Right off the, the bat, I don't. Um, I, I, I just remember him bringing up injustice a lot and, and really trying to point out that there was injustice happening in the courts, that there was, you know, that, mm. that black people were not getting a, a fair treatment. And I, I don't think it was wrong for him to do so. I don't think he was necessarily wrong in his assessment, just the way that that was put out there and then not really, like we're going to sit down and deal with it. It's just, we're going to open this up and even the president sees this and is upset about it. And then leaving it out there, I just think has led to a lot of anger and, and accusation back and forth. Anyway, yeah. that's one example. But, you know, when it came to a lot of the pitting of LGBT and, uh, and Christian, um, you know, religious rights or whatever that might look like. Um, it just led to some upheaval. That's one of the reasons why Trump was elected in the first place was that sentiment of like, we want to be done with the big political thing. As I've said before, I was kind of shocked that that Trump got elected, but I think that there was a sensationalism about him and a willingness to say things that others wouldn't and not play the political game that I think for some people was refreshing, but 
it also means he's a bit of a loose cannon and hard to know where he's going to land and hard to trust, which was really borne out in his presidency. Um, so, but I think that's one of the reasons why some conservatives were fighting so hard to keep him in office. What, and, and why the Capitol Hill riot happened was because the idea of going back to some of Obama's policies um, under Biden was a scary concept. Yeah. I think that's sort of been borne out in his first couple of weeks here in office where he has done so much by executive order um, and overturned so much that including some things that I think were good things that, that Trump did, but, uh, um, but that overturning um, through executive order uh, is I think exactly what conservatives were afraid of and didn't want to have happen. And now yeah, we feel that they are. So yeah. something is really not working here with this government and presidential relationship with the people. Um, I've heard one person say that the, the position of president has too much power. And I, I, I'm open to that idea mm-hmm. of limiting the power of the president. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the purpose of having somebody in the executive role. Um, there needs to sometimes be somebody who can push something forward apart from lots and lots of deliberation, you know, um, that he becomes the... Uh, the executive person over the military and, and over different things. Um, and so there, there needs to be a place for somebody to be able to do that. But if they do have too much power and um, they can't be checked by other branches of the government, then, then that's a very scary thing. And it does move toward being a dictator. Yeah. I don't want that. I, I don't want my causes to be gained through that level of uh, force and coercion because I sure don't want to be the recipient of it uh, with causes that I don't agree with. You know, I think that's a really good perspective, Marshall. Like I find that rare these days. Um, I, I hear so often of people wanting to vote a president in so that he's going to do what they want him to do. Like he more, more aligns with the way I think things should go. And therefore, if I get him in, he's going to do everything I want him to do. And uh, he's going to force these things forward. And that means forcing things onto other people who don't see things the same way. Yeah. And that was something that I warned Christians about as Trump was in office was like, you got to be careful with this talk of like forcing things on people, like making things happen by executive fiat, because it can turn around and bite us on the other side. So exactly what you're saying is, I don't want that will forced on people. I'd rather us figure out a better way forward together. Yeah. Can you give me an example of uh, a real world situation that might happen that conservatives are afraid is going to happen now that Biden is in office? Yeah, so uh, I would have to go. I'm not looking for um, like higher level type things. I'm looking for in somebody's daily life, like say uh, a conservative who lives in a rural area what is going to change in their daily life that's going to make life worse for them? Maybe now that Biden is in office. That's a, that's a good question. So um, here's, here's going to be something that's probably a little controversial, but um, so um, his reversal of some Trump era um, policies on LGBT and um, uh, you know, transgendered, people within the military and what's in schools and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, as a conservative believer, I want to raise my children up um, in the way that I think scripture teaches us to go. I don't really like the idea of her having to be concerned about 
somebody who is biologically male going into the bathroom with her. Um, I also personally don't think that it's wise to have somebody who is biologically female in a fighting role against male, uh, oppositional males. Um, oh, so you're opposed to uh, women in the military too? I, I, it depends on where they're at in the military. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say just ban them from the military entirely, but when you're a ground troop and you're facing off and, and, you know, most of our fighting happens over a distance at this point, but if you're in a situation where you're going house to house and you may be facing oppositional forces, there, there are differences between men and women. Um, that make it much harder to just makes it so that a person would be much more easily overpowered just because of strength. Um, and if we turn a blind eye to those things based on concepts of rights or an individual's uh, kind of right to choose, you know, their expression, it, it can put other people on that team in danger. So are there not tests in the military to vet out uh, whether someone is not physically fit enough, uh, regardless of what their sex is? There are, um, but is it totally equal across the board? Or are there different standards for men and women? I don't know. I believe I know the that there are. About it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so in an equal setting, it would remove a lot of women from that. You know, if we're saying we have to hit certain bars for physical strength, just men and women are, are built differently. Okay, um, so I, I see a, a problem that's worth looking at there. If, uh, if we have double standards that uh, are there for the sake of equality or inclusion, but that is to the detriment of the project at hand. I don't, I don't, I'm not in favor of those kind of uh, double standards. Uh, would you theoretically be okay with a, a situation where we just had one standard and if somebody, regardless of what their body type is, can meet the standard, then it's okay for them to join the military? Generally so, yeah. yeah. So to me, that's what the real problem is uh, in this situation. Or it seems like you and I might agree that the real problem is the double standard. Yeah. So I am, I am keenly aware and I want to be compassionate to the needs and the areas of frustration and concern for, you know, uh, people who view themselves differently, um, that they, they don't gender dysphoria and all of those things. And so I don't want to just be discompassionate and just sweep, sweep over things and sweep people away in the process. Um, at the same time, I feel like we're moving to enforce some problem, problematic realities. Um, and we're sort of requiring that of all of the population to engage in and support that I really have trouble with. I get it. I do too. And I see that as a problem. I think we're on to something with the double standard being the real problem. I, I want to make space for all of the people, all the different kinds of people there are uh, without having to decide for anybody what's the right way for them to be or for them to live. Uh, but I, I also share the same concerns and fear that you do in just kind of of the zeitgeist right now that we have of what's the mm -hmm. best way to go about that. And I see coming from the progressive side uh, at its worst, I do see uh, an authoritarian approach. Uh, you could almost say an oppressive approach I was talking about this with my sister recently. Um, she was listening to a podcast or reading a book or something. And somebody was pointing out that uh, kind of in general, conservatives have uh, 
as their primary value, preserving the lessons and gains that we've gotten from the past. And yep. uh, liberals have as their primary value avoiding oppression. And libertarians, I think what she said, the primary value was freedom. And all of, all of those values are necessary and good. We want to preserve the best from the past. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And we do want to avoid oppression. And we do want freedom. And I think that all three of those um, approaches at their extremes can ironically go against their own values. So on the progressive side, uh, I have seen people who are willing to be oppressive in service of trying to avoid oppression. And uh, I've definitely seen in the libertarian sense, uh, you know, if you say, hey, you're restricting my freedom to restrict other people's freedom, that's, <laughs> that's not really about freedom. That's kind of about your version of freedom and not the principle of freedom. Yeah, I, I don't know if she coined it, but uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, had once said that the exercise of my freedom ends at my neighbor's nose. I love that. And so, you know, swing away in your own space. But when it uh, when you hit somebody else in the nose, now you've gone too far and now we've got issues, you know? Yeah. And this is this is really a rich issue here. Uh, I mean, this is why I get fired up about uh, LGBT rights. Uh, I've known people who have come from conservative families or conservative towns or conservative approaches to religion who have said, we, we want to force you to feel differently. Mm -hmm. We want to force you to change uh, your ideas about uh, your uh, sexuality and your gender. To me, that's what's, uh, what's a really tricky challenge here of learning how to work together on these issues is uh, I really want to say to anybody who's different, if they're a conservative, I want to say, yeah, I want you to have your space. I, I don't want you to be in a situation where you have to participate in something that goes against your values. I don't want that at all. But it becomes complex when somebody says, well, my values are I want to send you to a camp where they try to force mm -hmm. you not to be gay. In certain senses, I, I want people to have the freedom to raise their kids the way that they want. But in other senses, there is such a thing as child abuse. And if, if we don't intervene at all in, sense, in situations of child abuse, I think that's wrong. I think we've got to intervene in certain yeah. ways. That can be a really tricky thing. And it's a hard line to find. And when we're trying to set up laws for all the states and we're trying to figure out what is good for everyone things get put through in really sweeping ways and yeah. people get sometimes harmed um or or feel like they lose rights in the process uh, i mean you bring up some really good things uh to talk about too i i think we had talked at, at some point of um talking through sexual ethics and, and things like that and the different perspectives on that. And, and I think um, those sorts of uh, the camps you mentioned, things like that um, would be a good thing to talk about because uh, they, they have done a lot of damage. And yet I feel like the reaction back might've been too sweeping as well. You know, what happens when, so as, as somebody who's in a church, um, what happens when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling these feelings. Um, I'm really struggling with these thoughts and I'm not sure who I am right now to be able to sit down and hopefully very compassionately walk with them through that, but also having, uh, doctrinal commitments. I mean, things that, that we believe to be true that have been given by, a creator that is meant for all of humanity. And so there is a perspective there that we want to share, but how does that look as we share it? Um, in what spirit is that shared? Uh, that is a very important thing too. 
So I had a pastor once who said, it's not just the matter. It's also the manner in which it's conveyed. You might be, something might be true, but if you convey it in a way that is harmful or arrogant or just unable to be heard, what's the point? And so we want to talk about matters, but we also want, and I think that's, this is a big part of why we're doing this podcast together is that the manner matters as much as the matters themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, the situation you described doesn't worry me too much. Uh, The idea of somebody who grows up in uh, a Christian faith and they uh, are open to the idea that their feelings of homosexuality or wanting to be a different gender are something that's uh, worth interfering with, changing, uh, addressing somehow. Um, and, and they say, can you help me? I love that. That's fine. Uh, I don't agree with it. I don't love it that way, but I love that everybody has the space to work out what is in line with their values the most. And, uh, what, what worries me is situations where somebody doesn't want that and it's forced on them and they can't find a way out. Yeah. Why is this hard for conservatives? Why is this a, um, this is an issue for conservatives that they don't want to say to each each their own. I think to an extent, conservatives are often the ones who say to each their own. With the LGBT situation? Well, I, I think in, in most cases. So when when I've talked with conservative people about these things, usually they say, I don't really care what somebody does in their own home or, you know, does on, on their own. I just don't want it forced on me and my family. Um, and, and I think they would probably, if they're honest, say, I don't really want to see it out in society in a sense on a large scale. And there we might say, where's our neighbor's nose, you know? That Um, is what I say there. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and they would say the same thing back is, is, some of these expressions would be offensive to them and um, or they're concerned for its effect on their children or, you know, any number of a thing and things like that. And so I'm, I'm not sure that there's a, like we've said, there are places where we're probably not going to come to agreement, but being able to hear each other's viewpoints is important and also finding a place to express differing points in as good of will as we can toward one another. That's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. We would, I don't think these problems would be such problems if we were starting from a place of goodwill. Uh, But I mean, as with restorative justice, if you want to give equal support and accountability to everybody, you start coming up against, or, you know, you just come to realize that, everybody is is tangled up in a web of responding to force and coercion and harm of some kind mm-hmm. and so when when we're responding to harm most of us don't know how to do that in a way that doesn't create more harm yeah one of the things that i want to live by and i don't always do it perfectly and in fact there are times i fail spectacularly at it, um, is wanting to be somebody who responds instead of reacts. So I want to be somebody who stops, calms myself, thinks about a useful and helpful response and moves forward with compassion. And yet I know that there are times where I get upset by somebody's tone or what they've done and I can become reactive. Yeah. And I can, and, and that when we become reactive, it tends to escalate things. And so I, I find that our media tends to be reactive 
Oh, yeah. You know, they sensationalize and they paint with broad sweeping brushes and and it leads to this place where people feel unwanted, unheard. You know, we've we've talked about that a bit and and then also afraid. Yeah. Um and sometimes it's even just through mockery. So I mean, yeah. You know, I think about um late night shows or SNL or something like that and yeah. and um uh how often Christians or conservatives are sort of the butt end of the joke there, you know. And it doesn't always feel equal. Yeah. You know? I do. I've seen this as a, a red flag that we need to watch out for, for a long time. Speaking because, as a progressive yeah. who would laugh at a lot of these jokes because uh, it gives me a sense of venting and uh, it helps me to feel like the hypocrisies that I see from the other side are being noticed and being addressed. Mm-hmm. But there is, I, I can't think of hardly any good that comes out of that in terms of actually restoring relationships and healing from the problem yep. that uh, we're venting about. And when you vent in a, pu- a public place, there's going to be somebody who feels the opposite and then there's going to be a fight or then they're going to have their own talk shows where they're venting in the opposite I I would love to see more um, slowness and reverence in in the public sphere. Uh, there's probably a time for venting, but you got to be careful about when you vent. And if you vent in front of millions of people in a country that's divided almost 50-50 about what they think, yeah, yeah, that's going to uh, exacerbate the division. Absolutely, absolutely, and. I'm I'm not sure how to kind of dial it back from where we are, but I, I think it's led to a lot of resentment uh, amongst conservatives of sort of being the butt end of the joke, and and so the responses are not great. Yeah, and um, I don't see a whole lot of conservative shows that do the same thing back, but I think. I think by the by nature conservatives tend to be a little bit more like guarded a little bit more i'm not going to wear my my feelings on my sleeve i'm not going to be an activist for these things i'm just going to plant yeah um but there comes a point where they also say i'm going to fight it just takes a lot to get them there but when they are there that can be a really dangerous place and yeah. that's what I feel like it has been brewing for some time. And I, I get it. I, I respect that decision to protect yourself and protect your highest values. Any conservative who is ready to fight, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that uh, warrior spirit. And I don't think that gets appreciated. Uh, anybody who's in any fight... I appreciate that uh, decision to protect yourself and stand up for what you think is worth fighting for. So I think that's a, a, that's a starting place that I like. And God, I hope that we can find a different way that, yeah. make, that is both of us deciding that we don't want to fight, uh, that, that we see a path forward that doesn't involve fighting. Yeah. But I think we might as well honor the decision to fight in the process. Because if you don't fight, if the only options you know are to uh, fight or submit, I mean, submitting is in a way um, participating in the violence that somebody else is doing to you. Mm. So I get that you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that either. That, to me, that's why I, I work so hard trying to f- find alternatives to violence because I don't want to submit. I don't, I don't want to go against my own values. But at the same time, I don't want to make somebody else go against their values. Right. And, th- and that's a, it's a hard line to find. Um, I don't remember if there's a book. Uh, I, I just remember somebody saying like, uh, um, argue better, fight less. 
you know, and, and one of the things I think we've lost is the, the public uh, square mentality where we mm-hmm. can go and discuss things. Um, I think part of the process of social media has enclaved us. And yeah. so we can't trade ideas back and forth. I see that in our politics, I, you know, that even if uh, <laughs> I find it sad and funny, maybe not funny, funny is not the right word. I find it ironic that Republicans will put something forward and Democrats may agree with it, but they can't afford politically to agree with it. Right. Uh, and so they'll shoot it down until they've got the majority and then they bring up the same exact thing and try to get it pushed through. And then the Republicans are have, have they can't afford politically to support it. So then they try to shoot it down and it's just back and forth and back and forth when both sides kind of really wanted the same thing. Uh, yeah, I know. It just yeah, seems foolish. It does, man. Uh, this is another thing my sister pointed out in our last conversation, um, that uh, the majority of lawmakers in, in Congress uh, come from a legal background. And uh, law, at least the way that it is currently, is not about searching for what's true in good faith. Hmm. It's about starting with some kind of foregone conclusion that for whatever reason you have, whether it's uh, you're trying to serve your client or whatever, you, you use any kind of matter that's within the rules or that you think you can get away with uh, to persuade people of this particular foregone conclusion. It's kind of the opposite of science. <laughs> and my sister's a scientist. So she, yeah. uh, she'd like to see more scientists in Congress than uh, lawyers. And yeah, I mean, kind of when I think of the troubles of society that really bug me, the law and lawyers and the way law is practiced, it keeps coming up. And I'm not sure how to address that, but I hope that we can somehow. Because the truth, yeah. the objective truth should be more important than some, somebody's foregone conclusion. Right. You know, and, and and that's really important. I I had a legal issue that happened a while back, and I can't get into all the details. But um, what I thought was interesting was I was seeking justice. I was seeking being made whole on something that had gone very very wrong, where people had, I felt were deceptive. So I didn't swing for the fences and try to go after more. I just tried to be made whole. And I tried to talk with the other side about it. And they basically stonewalled me and got their lawyer involved. And so I would try to, you know, reason with the lawyer and the lawyers there to represent her client and whatever. And I remember at one point I said, look, he wouldn't even be talking to me unless you knew that what I was saying was true. And she started to laugh at me. The lawyer? The lawyer yeah, laughed at me. And I realized at that point, I needed to get a lawyer involved. Mm-hmm. And which I probably should have done immediately off the bat, but young, you know, sure. stupid. So uh, <laughs> sad that it has to come to that. And, yeah. you know, I talked through it with, my lawyer and he finally said you realize that the law is not about justice it is not about you know uh as you said making the truth known um it's about what compromise and what you're willing to walk away with and we'll fight for that line but recognize you're going to be paying for it too. And it's like, goodness, but just those words, like this is not about justice. Yeah. I always thought this was the justice system. Right. I wonder what a authentic justice system would look like. Yeah. I, to me, this is a, this is a life threatening illness of society. 
how involved lawyers are and the fact that the justice system is not about justice. Yeah. And it feels very much not blind. Oh, you know, that geez, concept yeah. of, of I mean, being the, impartial. The know? influence that money has on how much punishment you receive is, uh, it's unforgivable. It's unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Everybody, no matter, like if, if a law is going to be a law, it should be a law regardless of how, how much money you have. Agreed. And, and there shouldn't be a double standard for those who have more money or more influence than those with less. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just thinking, Marshall, are there maybe some, some steps or practical how-tos on overcoming fear in conversations uh, with people who don't see things the same way we do? Uh, can you think of things that uh, would be helpful uh, for those conversations? Yeah. Well, the first one is hidden in plain sight, and it is uh, so tricky uh, that, I mean, this is involved in the recovery of emotional problems. The language that we use about fear leads to uh, us thinking that fear itself is... Uh, something that needs to be fixed or eliminated. Mm. Uh, so like, even in the way you just asked me about it, you said overcome fear. And yeah. if, uh, if you go to the psychology section at the bookstore, you'll see so many books that say something like, um, uh, over, overcome your fear or slay the worry demon, or there's all this battle imagery. Uh, and it's, it's about eliminating fear. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that can help is to notice that fear is good. All of us are here because our ancestors saw something as a p potential threat and avoided it. And uh, our fear helps us to do that. It helps us to mm -hmm. stay alive, to uh, protect ourselves and other people from harm. And when we focus too much on trying to manipulate the fear, to change the fear, to address the fear itself, we get bogged down and we don't really think about what the fear is about. Uh, and uh, it can lead to things like fear of fear <laughs> and even that's okay. But um, the, the thing to do is to think about what you're afraid of and validate that. And then think about what the other person's afraid of and validate that. And we're not on the level of, uh, of uh, thinking. Uh, of um, positions. We're not saying, oh, it makes sense that you're afraid of uh, an alligator following you or whatever, you know, whatever something absurd might be. Uh, you don't need to do that. You can say, it makes sense to be afraid of alligators. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's explore this together. So um, instead of both sides trying to not be afraid and trying to show up and say, okay, I'm going to gird up my loins and uh, <laughs> grin and bear it. And I'm just going to face my fears. That's not really necessary. You bring your fear to the table. And when you can do that, then uh, you're more receptive to the, the validity of the other person's fear too. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Brene Brown? Um, in my work, just about every person I meet brings her up and I'm kind of embarrassed to say I haven't really explored her too much. I've watched a video or something, you know, sure. one or two, but uh, I had, uh, I had the pleasure of, of, uh, uh, going and seeing a Ted talk, uh, that she put on and, uh, uh, and then bought her book, um, daring greatly. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that she talks a lot about is being willing to be vulnerable. Um, being open and sharing your fears, sharing the the, un, the motives underneath. And I think so much of our lives tend to focus around not sharing our motives, not sharing vulnerable yeah. areas, not, not exposing the weak underbelly because somebody's going to rip it open. And what she says is actually that defensiveness, that defensive posture 
is what causes so many relational and corporate breakdowns. So it's not just a matter of, of one relationship or a few relationships in your life, but it has an impact at your work. It has an impact in, in our overall society, uh, this defensiveness and not being quite honest, not being uh, genuine with each other, vulnerable with each other leads to not just uh, individual emotional problems, but corporate complex uh, team-based problems and, and eventually economic problems. Yeah. And we can see that all the way up to international, uh, you know, markets and, and political relationships. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, I think there's problems on both extremes right now that are playing out in society of not being willing to be self-aware about your own feelings and also the opposite extreme of being hyper-vigilant and hyper-precious about your own feelings. Mm. And I think that when one side thinks of whether, whether there's room for improvement on their own side, they just see the opposite extreme. And I'd like to throw out the idea that the opposite of doing too much is finding a good balance. It's not doing too much in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So somebody can say, yeah, maybe I could be more vulnerable without saying, uh, oh, that means that now everybody has to uh, coddle me. Right. And, and there is risk involved, right? If you're vulnerable and you share, share where you're at or what your motives are, it could very well lead to somebody taking advantage of you. I think so. In, in some cases, I think the irony, though, is that what really gives people leverage over you is when you're trying to hide a feeling and the other person knows that you don't want that feeling to be known. And, you know, there is something really freeing when there isn't leverage on you. Yeah. I mean, if I go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm, I'm nervous that you might attack me because of what I saw you do earlier. What can they really say? But if I say, um, I'm not scared, you know, I, you, you don't scare me. They know that they do scare me. And right. now they can manipulate me using that knowledge. Yeah. I, I think the, uh, the benefits outweigh the detriments. There can be situations in which we can be, we can be hurt. Um, but we also learn and, <laughs> yeah. you know, grow through those things too. Um, but one thing that you mentioned that I really liked and, and thought we could uh, also talk about is, is um, kind of recognizing, um, you know, when, when we're open and we, we bring things to other people to, to be able to work together at that. And I think maybe one of the steps that would be helpful is um, in, in conversations is recognizing that other people are like us. Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned in a previous um, uh, podcast that there was an article in which they were talking about um, how we make these uh, categories of the other and an and outside versus inside group. Yeah. And how often the, the most angry um, fights happen between those who are most like each other rather than wildly dissimilar because those small variations are what we deal with on a day in and day out basis. And that's what we create division around. And that division uh, can lead us to a place where we vilify each other and see each other as the other or the out group. And one of the things that I think we can do for better conversations is really try to see that other people are very much like us. And we can find places where we'll have common agreement Certainly. because we're human beings. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, any, any kind of behavior, anything that somebody does is done in the service of a need that all people have. It's better to look at that in, in an abstract way uh, without getting into the idea of is something really a need or not, but just uh, a, a of value, you could say. Uh, everybody does, so, their behavior is in service of, of value. 
And we can be surprised and shocked and disappointed at how somebody could possibly think that their particular behavior is in service of the value they think it is. That's okay. Uh, we don't need to get into that if we want to reconcile. All that is necessary is to uh, share what values we're aiming for. And once, once two parties can get to the point where they can tell the other party what the other party's value is and the other party says, yeah, that's what I'm aiming for, then things fall into place kind of quickly. Uh, yeah. So that's something to aim for. That's something to transform our systems with, uh, our justice system, our legislative system. Uh, it's got to be based on the, those shared human needs and values rather than positions because the positions haven't gotten us anywhere. They've gotten yeah. us to a, a 50, 50 divide in a gigantic nation mm -hmm. where half the time the whole country is terrified of what the other country is celebrating. What a nightmare. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. If it cannot be a nightmare between you and I, then it cannot be a nightmare between all the various kinds of people we got in this country. Right. I agree. I also, you know, bringing up the idea of the people that we're seeing as other often are the things that are just like one step removed from what we are. Right. Right. That reminds me of uh, rivalries of like uh, Miss Minnesota versus Wisconsin and, and sure. stuff like that. Those Wisconsin people. <laughs> no, we love you, Wisconsin people. <laughs> and I don't know. It's, it's going to be a long, painful, gradual process to heal if we're already at the point of trying to destroy and eliminate each other. And we've already caused harm. But I wonder if something that we can try to do more of or look at as in sort of a macro way is the idea of a friendly rivalry between the people that we disagree with rather than I want to crush them and eliminate them. We don't actually want to eliminate Wisconsin. We, we kind of enjoy the process of having our sports games and uh, trying to win. And then sometimes we don't win. And uh, I wonder if it's possible to look at our political differences that way, to have uh, something of a lightness and a sense of humor more so than we do. And at the same time, appreciate the gravity of them. Yeah. And I, I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, you know, I would, I would just think about some of the conversations I've had with, with some of the people from my church or, you know, other believing friends who, you know, they would say like abortion, like that's a no go for them. Like, um, and, and they would probably be offended just to hear what, what you just said, because they would say, well, I, I, there's no place for agreement on that. Yeah. We have to fight. And the way they phrased it is we need to fight for the rights of the unborn, um, that these are human beings that have a right to life. Um, and I, I don't want to press too hard on this because it was kind of a creative idea that I haven't really sure, thought no, out that I, I just threw yeah. out. But sure. however, to explore it a little more, I mean, all of us find ourselves in a situation that involves some heavy stuff. I mean, we're all going to die. Yeah. We eat animals, or if we choose not to eat animals, everything we do involves, uh, you know, crushing microscopic life that we can't see, or, you know, even plants want to stay alive. Yeah. And we are caught up in a, uh, a game of life and death that is messy and most beings die with terror as they're being eaten by another being or killed by one of their own beings. And yet we can find time to uh, be light and to have a sense of humor about things. And so maybe it is possible to have a sense of humor about some of these terrible things. And maybe it is possible to have a sense of humor even in the midst of war. I don't know. It's not, it's just a creative idea I had, but. No, it's, I mean, that's worthy of really considering. Um, it's hard, you know, and I think both you and I would say like the way that in war we vilify uh, our enemy can be so detrimental 
I don't know if I ever told you, but my, my grandma, um, or my great grandfather was a professor at the university of Minnesota and he taught economics and German. And when world war one broke out, um, he was basically out of a job because um, nobody wanted to learn German. Yeah. And uh, anybody who would, was identified as having German blood or having some sort of love for Germanic culture was, I mean, beat up, you know? Yeah. And so he actually had to take a job that took him out of the country. So it was a, it was a really hard time. And so my grandma would tell me the stories about that, that time and what her dad went through. And, and so that was happening within the United States toward our fellow citizens. Um, and then we can think about the internment during World War II of, of people of Japanese background and, and not just them, uh, many Asian people. Yeah. Oh, which was awful. Yeah. It's a, it's a grave situation and it's worth uh, being willing to feel the gravity and the sadness of these tragedies. Yeah. That's something that I think we could all use more of is uh, a willingness to feel sad. So we started this episode talking about fear and you asked for my input about what, how do we make improvements there? And my answer was to feel, feel the fear. And I would say that about the sadness too. Mm. Uh, the, the message of every advertisement is that what's normal is to feel no sadness, to feel no fear, to feel no negative emotions, to be happy all the time. And now that leads to uh, a nation of consumers who are uh, defensive about their they're inwardly defensive. Just like you were bringing up with Brene Brown, you know, it can be detrimental to a relationship or conversation if you're not willing to be vulnerable. But we're not even willing to be vulnerable with ourselves because we've all been taught that it's dangerous, it's unhealthy, it's not normal yeah. to, uh, to feel fear, to feel sadness. And the irony is that when you start being willing to feel those fear, sadness, and cognitive dissonance, Un not knowing, not knowing the answer, uh, then you actually are able to feel the opposite at the same time. You're able to feel uh, like everything, like you have what it takes to navigate the uncertainty and that it is possible to laugh even in the midst of sadness and despair. And uh, it is possible to relax and have confidence even when you're terrified. Hmm. Yeah, that would definitely be a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in most of the media that you and I are fed up with right now, there's no appreciation for cognitive dissonance and for complexity. Yeah. And, and that's what our politics has become is. Uh, yeah. We would rather in a certain sense have the certainty of war than the uncertainty that the people who are behaving in a way that we wish would change actually have the same feelings and needs that we do. Yeah. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. But uh, I can tell you from experience that it's way more uncomfortable to be in torment where you're constantly trying to avoid discomfort than to just experience ordinary suffering. Life is suffering. And that's normal. That's nobody's fault. You're not responsible for changing the fact that life involves suffering. But if you can kind of uh, personify that and put it at somebody's feet, then it, it's almost, uh, there's something to fight against. So in, in a way, it's almost like people create a false sense of hope by creating an enemy. I think so, yeah. We use things that have helped us in the past, approaches, but we do it in a really generalized manner. And that leads to emotional problems a lot of the time. Everything makes sense. All emotions make sense. But um, certain situations actually call for uh, extreme effort and uh, extreme defensiveness. And so uh, if you have had success with that in the past and you try to use it in kind of a mindless, generalized way, then you'll find yourself using, expending extreme effort where it's not called for. 
where it wouldn't actually help. And uh, being extremely defensive in situations where it doesn't actually help. So uh, that's what I, I hope more people can catch on to. It's helped me is to think about, it's not that I should never be extreme. It's that I should think about, does the situation call for being extreme? And would I be better off if I did something less extreme in this situation? Maybe not. Maybe it is an extreme situation. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's, uh, again, hard to find the, mm -hmm. the answer to. It's hard to, hard to know. Um, I know there are sometimes times where I feel like I should have fought for that. Yeah. And then other times where I go, I fought too hard for that. Yep, certainly. And it actually backfired. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Me too. I think both you and I in the last several years have become a little less combative on social media. Yeah. And it's it's definitely done me good. Yeah, me too. I, In fact, I've kind of unplugged quite a bit from social media. Um, you know, I longed for a space where there could be healthy dialogue, healthy debate, uh, because I, I value that kind of thinking to be able to engage with somebody who may not see it the same way and, and wrestle gently, you know, mm -hmm. and in, in goodwill, you know, uh, toward uh, a common solution. And yet I found so often um, people don't approach things that way. And uh, it leads to, uh, you know, we throw memes at each other um, in sort of a passive aggressive way and then are offended if somebody calls us on it yeah. and, and feel that that's inappropriate and it wind up talking past each other. I want to try something and I invite you to try it if you want to. I'm going to try to think of what certain fears might be from conservatives about the kind of future that I would, that I'm kind of hoping that I don't want to say pressing because I don't want to press anybody that, but I'm working for. And I want to just try to acknowledge and identify what those fears are in a way that maybe the people would find uh, refreshing or at least know that I care. Sure. So yeah, uh, I definitely care about everybody's freedoms. I want conservatives to feel like they have maximum freedom to live their life uh, without somebody, some laws or somebody else telling them what to do and not interfering when it, in the areas of their deepest values, um, how they raise their kids, how they practice their religion, what kind of society they live in. I definitely don't want a situation where somebody is living not in line with their deepest values. I do care about life. I care about innocent life. I don't want to end innocent life and I don't wanna have a, a flippant attitude towards it. I want to preserve the lessons that we've learned from our past. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to throw out everything. I want everyone to have the latitude to say, maybe this is different from the zeitgeist at the moment, but uh, I like the traditions. The traditions that I come from are meaningful to me. And I want to be able to li uh, live within those traditions in accordance with those traditions without somebody judging me and calling me the worst names and making me, uh, making fun of me, mocking me and trying to change me. I don't want that future. I want the things that I want, but I don't want to get it through the means of that future. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I really appreciate those, those things that you're saying, like, uh, it, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we, uh, connect so well. Um, yeah. And, and on the other side, you know, um, I just want to convey that as we move into a future, you know, while I think there are some conservatives who, who sort of look at the past with rose-colored glasses, I think many conservatives go, no, we, we need to move forward. There are things we need to accomplish. And, you know, we need to progress as, as a society. And I certainly feel that way. And yet how we get there and how quickly we run to get there. Um, and, and sometimes we run headlong uh, 
that way without really considering some of the costs. Um, and, and I would just want to say that most conservatives, including myself, want to be people of goodwill. Uh, we want to be people who um, value uh, other people's rights and other people's right to exist and to live and um, and love, even if we don't agree with that expression of it. And so there are some things that we would say, hey, you know, we would struggle to support some of those things out in society. And yet at the same time, we don't want to do harm and, and do care and want to be able to have a space where we can uh, express care even in the, in a place where there may not be full agreement. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure talking to you. You too, Marshall. Thank See you. you next time. All right. All right.